a uh, national radio program, two hours a day, covers all of New York, New Jersey, through North Carolina. He uh, has a, a, a school that he trains young people up to being kingdom carriers. He was one of four men who helped shepherd the Brownsville Revival. How many of you know about the Brownsville Revival? It's just it, an outpouring of God poured out on Brownsville, tens of thousands of people flying in from all over the world for this revival where thousands and thousands were saved. They had to revamp the airport restaurants because they couldn't handle all the people coming into their town. It totally changed the complexion of that town. Dr. Michael Brown was a part of shepherding that movement. Now today, what I'm having, the reason I'm having him here today is because of this. And I got to say this to uh, set this up and then I'm going to turn it over to him because I'm going to give him as much time as possible because once he starts teaching, you're not going to want him to stop. Today, I'm asking him to address a doctrine that has entered the body of Christ called the hyper grace doctrine. You may not have heard of it, but you will. Some of you are in it. Some people in our congregation have left because of it, as well as other congregations. It has caused friendships to break in the body of Christ, and it's pervasive all over the globe. It's gaining momentum. I do not like combative, confrontational messages unless it's necessary. Because I don't like debating theology because it divides. But when it's already dividing, you've got to do something to bring us back together again. And I can't think of another person that's more qualified to bring this message because of his uh, intelligence, his uh, uh, acumen, but also because of his compassionate, loving way that he delivers the Word of God. And so if you have not been caught up in the hyper-grace doctrine, then this will help guard you against it. But also, it will help you not to fight with your brothers and sisters who are, have bought into the hyper-grace doctrine, but it will give you information that you are ready to have an intelligent, compassionate conversation with them to help keep the body of Christ unified. And my job is to help you have spiritual food that's healthy for you to grow like you do for your children. I want you to be healthy. I'll be held accountable for what you're being taught. And so, like I said, I can't think of another brother to have in the pulpit better than Dr. Michael Brown to help bring this balanced message to describe the grace of God. So let's welcome Dr. Michael Brown in the house. Here we go. Good morning, folks. Great to be with you, and it was a real delight uh, to worship with all of you, really. What a, what a wonderful open spirit before the Lord. I, I do need clarification on one thing. You've got to help me. I, I'm a New York Jew, and I, I, I thought you meant it as a compliment, but you said I could chuck the corn like no one else. I don't, I don't really know what that is. That's, that's positive. That's a good thing. Hey, hang on. Sh- I'm from Ohio. Lessons from Indiana. You understand that? All right, good. Well, I can't Okay, so that's it. a good thing. Shucking the corn is a, a good, good thing. thing. Okay, yeah. I really didn't know. I assumed so, but didn't want to. And if I, I, don't, I want to be able to use it on the radio so I can be culturally sensitive because we are all over the country. If someone calls from Ohio, I'll say, hey, man, you really know how to shuck the corn in Ohio. And they'll just be like, yes, yes, we love you, Dr. Brown. Uh, when I was in Pensacola for seven years, you got to remember, as a New York Jew, I'm not used to lower Alabama culture. Pensacola is right next to Alabama. And I lived with seven years of daily culture shock. And the people that worked with me lived with seven years of daily culture shock with me. And sometimes people would be sharing a testimony in revival. And, uh, you know, so, man, I, was, I had the molly grubs. Like, what, what's the molly grubs? I, I'd actually have people on the platform with me translate what was actually happening. 
And, and those of us that moved from out of the area into Pensacola, we could target the day when the light went on, when we realized that Bubba was actually a name. <laughs> Not just a nickname or a description. Oh, Bubba's actually a name. It's like, yeah, I was there a year and a half. Oh, it was two years for me. We would target that. So I've, I've, I've come to Southern California to pick up an Ohio idiom. There we go. Hey, listen, um, all of you that, that live in this area, uh, you get the last half hour of my show uh, from 7.30 to 8 on KPRZ, KPraise, which again, the numbers are 12.10. So Monday to Friday, you get the last half hour, and it stands distinct by itself from 7.30 to 8 at night. So you can't call in because it's delayed a little while from the actual broadcast. But you can always email if you've got questions or things you'd like to ask, because we cover a, a wide gamut of things on the show. Also, uh, for all of you that are on Facebook, you can actually do this right now with my permission. Um, you can get on your cell phone and go to Facebook and like my page, and you will see a few hours from now a picture of the young people in the praise pit with a shout-out to the connection, but only if at least 100 folks join me this afternoon. So ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown on Facebook, A-S-K-D-R Brown. You can do that later if you like. Or if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, we put out a, a, a neat little quote this morning from a Jewish evangelist who's now with the Lord. But I just spotted it last night. I thought I want to post that this morning. It was that King Saul thought Goliath was too big to fight. David thought he was too big to miss. And see, that was just what you needed this morning, but because you didn't get my tweet, you didn't get that. So Dr. Michael L. Brown, D.R. Michael L. Brown, one word, of course, with two L's in the middle, D.R. Michael L. Brown. You can follow me there. And, and we write um, regular articles. I'm writing between one and three articles a week that are posted from conservative political websites to Christian websites. Uh, I, I wrote one last week, and it was Post-it Monday morning, this ties in with what I'm going to speak about. It was post-it Monday morning at 11 in the morning. It was called Sex Symbols Who Speak in Tongues. It was, it was about the faulty gospel message that produces these monstrosities of, of people that claim to be followers of Jesus that are living just like the world. And what I pointed out was the gospel, not these people, but the gospel. And, and this message and mentality that who are we to judge so anything goes and um, any, anyway, on one Christian website, not the biggest website, one Christian website within the first 24 hours, it was not read or, or looked at, but shared, it was shared 20,000 times within the first 24 hours. When I, when I looked this morning before coming here, it's just under 50,000. It's like 49,800 times. It was, like, it was liked 46,000 times on Facebook. Uh, so all that to say it's, it's hitting a nerve, it's resonating. Uh, so if you're on my Facebook page or Twitter, you'll know when we print a, a new message, post something, what we're talking about on radio every day. And then on the Facebook page, we'll often open it up for lively discussion so you can weigh in and see what's happening in the body. And it's, just, it's a cool way. You can waste time with these things. You can use them redemptively. And then every so often, you'll see a picture of me with, with my grandkids or something like that, something just like a sweet bonus there. All right. <laughs> let's, um, let's pray together. Abba, we love you. We come to you as your servants, as your sons and daughters. 
We come to you as those beloved by you before the foundation of the world. We come to you, Lord, as recipients of your grace and lovers of your grace and lovers of your truth. We pray that you'd open our hearts and minds that we would receive from you and walk in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Jude, right before the book of Revelation, to Jude, or if you are reading on your cell phones, don't turn there, go there. Jude, or as he would have been known, Judah in his day. Jude chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, he writes this, Jude 1.3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. In other words, I was going to write an encouraging word and, and rejoice in the salvation that we share. But, but there's error out there, and there are false teachers and false apostles that are preying on you. And because of that, I, I had to address some difficult issues here. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus the Messiah. Some translations read they turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. Now Jude was talking about corrupt, false teachers who were deceiving the body. Wolves in sheep's clothing who were liars, who were charlatans, who were adulterers, and were teaching falsehoods to the people of God in the name of grace and in the name of the love of God. And that's what Jude was confronting. And I'm sure that there are charlatans and wolves in sheep's clothing that are out there in the body in America and around the world. There have always been false prophets and teachers. There always will be. But I'm not talking about them today. I'm talking about brothers and sisters within the body, part of the family of God, many of whom have have anointed powerful ministries that that have done a lot of good, but they are now teaching things in an extreme and erroneous way that is bringing division and damage and harm. They are teaching things that have wonderful truths that have helped and liberated many. They've helped and liberated people who who were caught up in legalism, the, the notion that somehow I just have to work harder and keep more laws and regulations for God to like me or accept me or love me. For those who were caught up in insecurity and, and didn't recognize God's great love for them and, and maybe looked at God the way they looked at their abusive earthly father. They've taught things that have helped many and yet they have taught things in an extreme and exaggerated way. They have gone beyond what Scripture says and in some ways denied the very words of Scripture so as to bring real harm to the body. And in the same way, the grace of God has been perverted into sensuality. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to do my best to give you a short overview of what grace is really about, what biblical grace is really about, give you a short overview of of what the hyper-grace message is. Obviously, those teaching it 
teach it as, as pure grace and the, the message of God's grace and biblical grace. I'm saying it's hyper grace. It goes beyond what is written. It exaggerates and distorts what's written. I want to give you an overview of that. And then I want to lay out some clear warnings and principles by which you can live. And this is more extreme than you might realize. I'm running into it everywhere. I'm running into it when I'm not looking for it. I'm running into it when I'm just sharing and exhorting people and quoting the Scriptures. For example, 1 Peter 1, where Peter quotes Leviticus 19 and says, God says, be holy because I'm holy. And I just quote the word. And next thing, people are accusing me of being a pharisaical legalist. And they're accusing me of, quote, sin management and behavior modification. Thinking, where do these terms come from? And yet everybody seems to be using them. I'll just quote scripture and suddenly people hitting back with all these reactions. Where in the world is this coming from? And before I read from, from Titus 2, let me read something that a colleague of mine posted on his Facebook page. This is a, a real pastor, a colleague and friend of mine who's a real shepherd. He's not confrontational by nature. And, and his tendency would just be to love on people. You don't associate him with being a, a holiness preacher. I don't know anyone that's ever called him a legalist. But he posted this on his Facebook page. As the one who called you is holy, you yourselves also be holy in all your conduct and manner of living. First Peter 1.15 Whatever happened to holiness? And is it possible that the definition of that word has become so blurred that our modern day churches are more concerned about putting on a good show for our Sunday morning services than we are about being holy, which is the very thing we're called to be? There was, a, there was a, a knot in the pit of my stomach this afternoon after I hung up the phone with a friend of mine, we live in Charlotte, North Carolina, who happens to be pastoring a growing prestigious church. He relayed to me an anguishing story of how some from his worship team were hanging out with other key worship leaders in their city. He reported to me that his team came back from that hangout quite perplexed as some worship leaders were shamelessly launching F-bombs in the midst of their drunken stupors. And he goes on, with the story. And if you say, hang on, you're a worship leader, you're supposed to be bringing people into the presence of God, you should be living in, in priestly purity, loving God, an example of purity and holiness. I mean, after all, if you're encountering Him, you're going to be like Him. How is it now in the name of liberty you're going out and getting drunk and using profanity? Well, we'd be told we just don't understand grace. I've watched people backslide. I've watched people fall into spiritual confusion. I've watched people lose their spiritual fervor and fire and first love. I've watched people compromise their standards in the name of grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So notice that the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation to all people. Jesus dying on the cross, God pouring out His love for us. Romans 5, while well, we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. Ephesians 2, by grace you are saved, not of works, 
It's by grace through faith, not of yourselves. Well, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's when God made us alive through Jesus and seated us in heavenly places. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he gave us what Jesus deserved. Grace is that Jesus took what we deserved and God gives us what Jesus deserves. And we become sons and daughters of God and joint heirs with the Messiah. Beloved children of God set apart to be holy and call God's holy people. When the New Testament calls us saints, as it is in the King James and perhaps in translations today, when we're called saints, that means holy ones. That's how God looks at us and that's what He calls us to be. The grace of God bringing salvation has appeared to all people. And what does it do? It teaches us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. If you love grace, you hate sin. If you love grace, your nature is changed and you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. If you love grace, you recognize the price that was paid for your liberation. And when you look at the cross, you see the beauty of God's love and the ugliness of human sin. And and that's why Jude, at the end of his letter, says this. Look at this word. Jude, verse 20, but you, beloved... Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Notice holy is not a dirty word. Holy faith, Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Holiness and the love of God are two sides of the same coin. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The biblical message of grace says this. That we, without God, are hopeless, lost sinners. That in a million lifetimes could never turn to God on our own. Could never repay our debt of sin. In fact, each year that goes by, we dig a deeper hole of sin and rebellion against God. And yet, as I quoted Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. Jesus shed his blood for us before we ever did a good thing for him. He shed his blood for us, not based on our goodness, but based on his goodness. Some have said that that grace, the acronym G-R-A-C-E, we can call God's riches at Christ's expense. And he simply asks us to turn to him and not keep the Sabbath for a month straight or fast every Wednesday for a year or promise to give 20% to the poor and then he'll accept us. He simply says, receive my love and goodness to save you from your sin. Salvation is not in our sin. He doesn't save us so we can keep on sinning. He saves us so now we can be his. The one who saves us is the Lord Jesus, so we're saved from sin to holiness, from rebellion to obedience. It's just like if I give you free tickets to Hawaii, when you take advantage of those free tickets, you go to Hawaii. So salvation saves me from sin and now makes me a child of God. It's a gift. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. I don't have to improve myself to get there. You ever shared the gospel with someone? They say, I'm not ready yet. And they don't mean I'm not willing. They mean I'm not good enough yet. I have to change more. And when I change more, then I can get saved. No, get saved and you'll totally change. 
We become a new creation. How? By God's grace. But that's just where it begins. God's grace is not just some passive thing that happened once. Now by grace we are kept, by God's grace we are empowered, by God's grace we are strengthened to live for Him. The Greek word charis, which is the word for grace, occurs over 150 times in the New Testament, and most of the time it doesn't mean unmerited favor. It's, it's the word that's used, for example, we talk about the charismatic gifts. Charisma comes from that same word, charis. It's God's empowerment. It's God's enabling to do what he's called us to do. So when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6 and says, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace, he did not say sin won't condemn you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. In other words, you can sin all you want. You can do whatever in the world you want to do. You can be an adulterer, a serial killer, fornicating, child-abusing person, and sin won't condemn you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. So that's not what he said. He said sin won't have dominion over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Meaning, the law gave standards. The law is holy and just and good. If you love God, you love His laws and commandments. The problem with the law was us. There's an old poem, it may go back to John Bunyan originally, but it says this, to run and work the law commands, yet gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the power of the gospel. Now I'm enabled by grace. Now by God's grace I can keep the commandments. Romans 8, 1 through 4, the righteous requirements of the law are now written on our hearts. It's my nature to please God. It's my nature to love my wife. It's my nature to live a holy life. You say, you saying you've never sinned, you've never been tempted? No, to the contrary, I have sinned since I've been a believer, and I have been tempted, but because I'm a believer, I don't live in that. I used to live in that. When I was an unsaved heroin shooting LSD re- using rebellious teenager, I lived to sin and, and, and do the, the deeds of the flesh as much as possible. And here and there, I tried to do something good and had a little conscience, but my lifestyle was to sin and I sinned freely, and I didn't repent after it. After I shot heroin, I didn't tell anyone I was sorry. I boasted about it. When I did despicable things like steal money from my own father, I told my friends how cool I was. Now, if I find my eyes wandered and I looked at someone I shouldn't, I immediately say, Lord, forgive me. And I turn my heart to God and I get that image out of my head. Why? Because I'm a child of God. And God's grace lives in me and empowers me to do what's right. And you say, well, you must feel guilty for months if you think a wrong thought. No, I don't even feel guilty for a split second. I recognize it's wrong. I turn from it and I go and do what's right. And if God forbid I walk in that thing, then I feel the conviction of the Spirit, which is wonderful. And it saves us from disaster. However, we can sin against God's grace. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at what's written there. There's a warning, a call to holiness. And then a warning against immorality. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one... He's writing to believers here, Jewish believers. 
see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You can fail to obtain the grace of God. Or, as others would translate it, you can forfeit the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We can sin against God's grace. In fact, in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, it even gives a warning. In the 10th chapter of Hebrews, it it speaks in verse 29 and warns us about outraging the spirit of grace. Outraging the spirit of grace. So we're saved by grace, and God's grace now frees us and cleanses us and washes us. And every day as we walk with the Lord and seek to please Him, we're being cleansed continually, even when we don't know we need it. I'm sure we've sinned in many ways and and thought or or deeds of omission or things like that or lack of compassion or lack of focus or intimacy, whatever, and we don't even realize it, but we're seeking to please the Lord and we're just being washed and cleansed. And there's the defilement of the world that we walk in. Sometimes just being in the world, there's junk that gets on you. 1 John 1, verse 7 says what? If we walk in the light as He, God, is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If I'm walking in the light, where's the sin? Walking in the light doesn't mean perfection. Walking in the light is, this is the pattern of my life. And if I I get angry towards someone and speak in unkind words, or if I'm neglectful in prayer, or if I'm not compassionate, or if I think a lustful thought because I'm a child of God, I turn away from those things and I turn to the Lord and I'm just cleansed as I walk. Because I'm walking in the light. And if I do sin, we confess our sins, and He's faithful and just to forgive us. Notice it doesn't just say faithful, but faithful and just, because Jesus paid for it, so it's fair and right and just for God to forgive us. That's a a wonderful message of Scripture, God's amazing grace. The hyper-grace message goes beyond that. The hyper-grace message, and I could give you quote after quote from leading, respected, highly praised authors. I mean, highly praised by known leaders in the body saying, this is a great message. This is a great revelation of grace. I'm not quoting fringe, extreme things, but mainstream grace teachers. They would say that God in His grace has already forgiven you not just of past and present sins, But the moment you were saved, God also forgave you of all future sins to the day you die. And because of that, no matter what you do, no matter how you live, it never affects your relationship with God, even for a split second. That His relationship with you and fellowship with you is exactly the same 24-7, no matter how you live. Why? Because Jesus already dealt with your sin, and therefore God doesn't see it. And because he already dealt with your sin, you therefore don't confess sin or repent of sin. And anything that you do to seek to please God, anything that you do to strive to please God is works righteousness and legalism. And anyone that does not embrace the hyper-grace message is a stone-throwing legalist. It's an interesting thing 
over the years as a Jewish follower of Jesus, I've, I've been involved in lots of controversy with the Jewish community and rabbis and counter-missionaries because they passionately differ with Jews believing in Jesus. And I'm on the front line sharing the gospel and debating rabbis and writing books of answering Jewish objections to Jesus and so forth. And every so often, somebody would accuse me of all types of unethical practices. Well, you do this, and you try to brainwash people like this, and you do this and that. And I thought, I guess what's that? that's what they do. In other words, I never thought of that. I, I never came to, to my mind, you know, well, people like you do this, this, this. I wonder, are you projecting? I just wonder, is that your technique? Because I never thought of it. I'd never dream of doing something like that. Where'd you get that from? Let me, let me just read a couple of quotes to you. I'm not going to mention authors' names because I, I can't do it in context here, but I'm writing a book on hypergrace that will, will lay things out in detail. But here's what one hypergrace teacher says. Religion, not real Christianity, is and always has been in the behavior modification and sin management business. It's so lucrative. Did you know that preaching holiness and encouraging people to live for God and put away sin is a big money maker? <laughs> it is so lucrative and so firmly entrenched in the church that it will take a second great reformation and a revelation of no less importance than Luther's to correct this great and spiritually murderous lie. What's the lie? That God requires change of lifestyle if you're going to follow Jesus. Another author writes his book, quote, with the hope that it will destroy the religious arguments and doctrines of demons forever. And one respected pastor says this, the rock-throwing legalists who fill modern Christian churches and spawn the pharisaical preachers they listen to each Sunday seem to be more dim-witted than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. This is a grace preacher. You know what this is like? I'm going to do an anger management seminar. Just say something to me. I didn't tell you to intro. What are you doing, man? This is an anger management seminar. I'm going to teach you how to control your temper, buddy. Get with it. I mean, that's what this reminds me of. This is a grace book. And this guy's like punching in the face those that differ. Yikes. May I quote this again? The rock-throwing legalists who fill modern Christian churches and spawn the pharisaical preachers they listen to each Sunday seem to be more dim-witted than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They at least walked away without saying a word and had some sense enough to keep their mouths shut, which is more than can be said of the mean-spirited Pharisees of our day. And it never gets defined as to who's being spoken of. Therefore, if you differ with the message, that's who you are by default. And someone was just telling me the other night, they use the word wicked, a wicked argument that came up in the family, just raising these issues. The accusations come back hot and heavy against you. I would say that the person writing that ought to put that at the wall, on the wall and look at it and say, am I projecting that? Is that what I'm doing? Again, my reason in this context for not, quote, naming names is because I don't want to demonize brothers and sisters. And, and I don't have the time in a short Sunday morning message to, to give a full context of everything and to talk about all the positive part of the message and to help you have a Christ-like attitude towards the people. So I'm just going to expose the error itself 
and deal with that. The counterfeit or the hyper-grace message, I should say, the hyper-grace message takes a biblical truth and exaggerates it and goes beyond it. And it goes beyond it to the point that because the teachings of Jesus seem to contradict the hyper-grace message, therefore you must throw out the teachings of Jesus. And this is done. This is actively done. That the words of Jesus were, quote, under the law for Jews before the cross. The new covenant had not yet been initiated because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. So this is before the cross. This is pre-grace. Paul has the message of grace. Jesus had a message for Jews under the law. Therefore, it doesn't apply to us today. In other words, if the shoe fits, throw it out. (laughs) And because so many of the warnings of the Old Testament, which are filled with God's grace and also filled with God's holiness, because those rock the boat of the hyper-grace message, you just toss the Old Testament out. I mean, as a matter of habit, when I get into dialogue and discussion with hyper-grace people, I only quote the New Testament. Because I know if I dare quote the Old Testament, they'll reject it. Whereas Paul, in verse after verse after verse, the paragon grace preacher in the eyes of the hyper-grace people, Paul quotes the Old Testament left and right and never apologizes for it. In fact, that's the one Bible they had. They didn't know it was the Old Testament, they knew it was the Bible. And if they'd get up and preach the word, if Peter got up to preach or John got up to preach or Paul, they'd be reading from the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures. Or the Greek translation, that's what they'd be reading from. And they wouldn't say, well, we apologize for preaching this. You know, it's not relevant. Let me give you some principles, and then I'll give you some examples, some specific examples of hyper-grace teaching and the severe error with it. Principle number one, Jesus sets us free from sin, not to sin. I know it's very deep, PhD, NYU. You're like, man, that's just too heavy for Sunday morning, man. That's like, yes, I'm being sarcastic. I'm a New York Jew. It flows in my veins. When I'm in the flesh, it's sinful sarcasm. When I'm in the spirit, it's sanctified sarcasm. And I'm feeling it. I I think I'm feeling it now. We've got two of our grandkids live nearby us in North Carolina. They're 12 and 9 now, girl, boy. And they learned years ago from their mom and dad, sarcasm stays in the home. But this is an important truth. We have been set free from sin, not to sin. Liberty is liberty from sin, not liberty to sin. I mean, think of it with a physical analogy. You're a prisoner in a dungeon, a rat-infested dungeon. Heavy gates, doors, bolted and locked. And you're there in shackles, chained to the wall. And someone comes in and says, you are free, you are liberated. We have liberated this entire prison. They open the gates. They open your prison door. They unlock your shackles. You say, I'm free? You're totally free? Cool. Let's put those things back on. Jesus says in John the 8th chapter, I'll come back to Jesus in a second, but that's, that's the mentality. When you quote the words of Jesus, people will reject it as, quote, Old Testament or under the law, or only for the Jews before, which is mind-boggling. I'll come to that in a moment. 
but thank you for raising that objection. Past that was from that was from the pastor of your church. But he was that was role playing there, role playing. Jesus said this, John eight beginning verse thirty one, to Jews who were believing his message. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Then you go down a few more verses to verse 34. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We are free to do the will of God, not to sin. We are free to love God and love our neighbor, not hate God and hate our neighbor. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Because grace can be abused. There are hyper-grace teachers who glory in the fact that people misunderstand and abuse their teaching and use it as a license for the flesh. You say, see, we're doing something right because people are misunderstanding us the same way they misunderstood Paul. Well, in point of fact, Paul corrected the misunderstanding in passage after passage after passage after passage after passage. And the parts that he wrote that could be misunderstood, he immediately addressed and dealt with to make sure they weren't misunderstood. And he didn't glory in being misunderstood. Galatians 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You're Gentiles. You're not required to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and Sabbath observance and feasts and holy days in order to be saved. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law. Ah, the law's good, you see. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as a, as a, a cloak for the flesh and disobedience. Peter writes the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We have been freed from sin and liberated to serve God. That's freedom. One of the most famous atheists of recent years, now deceased, Christopher Hitchens, absolutely brilliant mind, and so lost. In his debates, he would always challenge people, be free, cast off this idea of a God that you have to serve, and please be free. Now, I've not specialized in debating atheists over the years, and I'm very weak in the science area. But a couple years ago, I debated a, a world-famous agnostic and New Testament scholar, and I thought I have to prepare more and more to debate atheists. My wife Nancy, also Jewish, came out of atheism. She was a hardcore atheist when we met at the age of 19. Then God gloriously saved her and brought us together. So she's helped me to understand the atheist mindset better. And, and we watched one major debate with Christopher Hitchens and the Christian philosopher, wonderful, dear brother William Lane Craig. And we were talking about, okay, if I was debating him, what would I have to learn or take on? And I thought, one thing I would do if I ever debated him, I'd make a major theme of my debate, freedom by serving God. You want to find real freedom? You die to the idolatry of me and you, and you find yourself serving God. Then you're free. Then you're liberated. 
totally contrary to what the flesh thinks. So first principle, true liberty is liberty from sin, not to sin. Second principle, if you love grace, you love the words of Jesus and you love the law. If you love grace, you love the words of Jesus and you love the law. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. But what does it say in John chapter 1, verse 17? There's not a but in the middle of the verse as some would translate it. Best to just put a semicolon. For the law was given by Moses, semicolon. Grace and truth came by Jesus the Messiah. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If you love grace, then you have to love the one through whom grace came. And you have to love the revelation and the teaching and the words that he gave. Which means that grace gives you a hunger to please the Lord. That grace gives you a desire to say no to the flesh and take up the cross and follow him. That grace has no problem with the words of Jesus saying in Luke 9, 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is free for the kingdom of God. Grace says, amen. Why? Because we're empowered now to do the will of God. And what we couldn't do before and where we constantly failed before and where we fell short and came under condemnation because of our own works and our own efforts and our own attempts at righteousness, now having been forgiven and free, we run the way of God's commandments. If you look in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 and read the next few verses, you'll find grace and truth, grace upon grace and grace and truth. That's who Jesus is. That's what he brings And he says distinctly in Luke, the 16th chapter, that he begins this new era, the law and the prophets until John. Now the good news of the kingdom is being preached. He's the one that introduces the good news in this new form and declares the kingdom of God is among you. And if you love grace, then you love the law of God. Hear me. You don't love legalism. You recognize legalism and smell it out immediately. What's legalism? Legalism is laws without love. Legalism is laws without love. Legalism is rules without relationship. Legalism is standards without a savior. Legalism is externally imposed religion. Here are the commandments, jump higher and keep them. A a cycle of continual falling short and condemnation or continual self-deception of self-righteousness. But what grace does, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, I mentioned before, other New Testament passages, it takes the righteous requirements of the law and writes them on our heart. Be holy because I'm holy. I want to be holy. Yes, sometimes there's a battle and temptation, but to the core of your being, who you really are as a child of God, you want to be holy. That's why if you really blow it, Some guy, you turn on the computer and download pornography, and man, I feel unclean. Okay, the reason you feel unclean is because by nature you're a child of God and you want to do what's right. And therefore you despise those things. That's why you repent rather than go out and boast about it and recommend the website to other people. That's what you would have done in the past as an unsaved carnal person maybe. But now you're redeemed. You love the requirements of the law. And, and, and when you, you read the things that God laid out, I don't mean every sacrificial detail, but you embrace what Paul writes in Romans 7, the law is holy and just and good. 
Or what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the law of the law is perfect, refreshing the soul. You, you can read the commandments and say, Lord, you're beautiful. You're so full of wisdom. You're amazing. If you reject that which Jesus said he came to fulfill, something's not lining up. Grace gives you God's heart. Third simple principle which relates to these, if you love grace, you hate sin. Because God's grace is that which forgives us from all of our sins and wickedness through the blood of Jesus. And God's grace is that which turns our heart on a daily basis. Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, I'll take the fleshly heart out of you and put in, rather the stony heart out of you and put in you a soft fleshly heart. And I'll write my laws and commandments on your hearts so you do. And that's what grace does. Anyone that downplays the ugliness of sin does not understand grace. Anyone that minimizes the destructive power of sin does not understand grace because God went through extraordinary measures to save us from those sins by His grace. And on a daily basis, He works in us to help us live in a way that's pleasing to Him. Why? Because He's a legalist? No, because He loves us. Because sin is always destructive and sin is the enemy. Let me give you a few specific Examples, some instances here. I'm quoting in context from a highly praised grace teacher. If you are, quote, working to please him, you are in for a lifetime of unfinished business and it will leave you perpetually exhausted. Well, on the one hand, you could apply that rightly. If, if I think I have to work harder and pray more and fast more for God to, to like me, well, then I'll forever be falling short. I understand that. But when you just think of people reading these words, okay, I'm not supposed to work to please him. Otherwise, I'm in for a lifetime of unfinished business. Well, what do you do with verses? I'll, I'll just throw this out quick. Ephesians 5, find out what pleases the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our goal to please him. Colossians 1, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every, in every way. 1 Thessalonians 4, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. We can displease Him by the way we live. Every day of our lives, there are choices that we make that can be pleasing to the Lord or displeasing. Paul says we work to please Him. We are called to walk worthy of the Lord. It is grace with responsibility. Grace with accountability. Grace that says, now live up to your high calling. You have been set apart as saints and holy ones. Now live it out. And don't outrage the spirit of grace by willful, blatant, unrepentant sin. Here's another quote. When God looks at me, He doesn't see me through the blood of Christ. He sees me cleansed. Likewise, he sees us as holy and righteous. He sees us and he loves what he sees. You say, yeah, I love He just delights me. There's truth to that. But can I ask you a question? When Jesus was rebuking the congregations in Asia Minor, saying, I know your works. You've left your first love. Repent or else. When he says, I have this against you. When he says, you say... 
I'm rich, increased in wealth, and I've need of nothing, and don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? When he says, wake up, rise from the dead, wake up from your sleep, when he makes plain, I'm not happy with you, and judgment is coming, and I'm going to discipline you because of your sin, was he delighted with what he saw? Was he laughing as he rebuked those congregations? James, or Jacob, as he would have been known, the fourth chapter, writing to brothers and sisters. If, if, if God only sees us as holy and righteous and is always happy with what he sees, whenever he looks at you 24-7, he's always happy with what he sees. Was he happy with this? Oh, let's see here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? You adulterous people. Was he happy when he wrote these words? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. This is in the New Testament, written to believers. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Was, was Paul looking at the Corinthian believers and saying, wow, God, God looks down at oh, that's so sweet, that man who's sleeping with his father's wife and, and committing incestuous immorality. Boy, God is just so happy with you. He just delights in that couple. No, Paul said, this is not even heard of among the pagans. And he said, if these people won't repent, you're going to judge them and put them out of the fellowship with the hope that, that they can be turned and saved. That this man involved can be turned and saved. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 and said that some had gotten sick and others died because they hadn't examined themselves before partaking of the Lord's Supper and they were partaking unworthily, coming early, getting drunk on the wine and so on, and despising the others and not realizing this represents the body and blood of the Lord. Did God see them as holy and righteous and delight in them and smile and laugh or did he rebuke them? You see, when, when you are told that all your sins are already forgiven, not that Jesus paid for them all, but they have already been transacted as forgiven before you ever committed them, which is nonsense. They're paid for before we ever committed them, but they're not transacted as forgiven until they're committed, and there's forgiveness asked, obviously. But if you're told... All future sins are already forgiven, already transacted as forgiven. Whatever you do, God sees you as holy and righteous and delights in that. And you never need to confess a sin to God and say, Lord, this is wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And you never need to repent or turn from it. And another quote, nothing that you do ever affects your fellowship with God. Ever, no matter how you live, what you do, it does not affect your fellowship with God. Which, which to me is an obscene theological concept. That, that here's some man who claims to, to love Jesus, and maybe he's been born again, and now he's sinning against God's grace, and he's sexually abusing a little child. That God has the exact same fellowship and relationship with that person at that moment as the young people who were here worshiping Jesus, saying, Lord, I just love you, I want to please you. That's obscene. And I don't know what kind of, quote, relationship or fellowship that is. 
And that's another reason why hypergrace teachers have a problem with the words of Jesus. Because Jesus teaches us to pray on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Give us our daily bread, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. Some people have a great revelation about God's healing power with those verses. You know, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. If I said it the reverse way, on earth as it is in heaven. And then, forgive us our sins. And then as he teaches, if you stand praying, you have something against someone, forgive. Otherwise, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. In other words, there'll be a relational breach. Not that you go from saved to unsaved at that moment, but there's a relational breach. You understand the damage that comes when human beings who can be tempted, who can be pulled to do wrong things, who, who can be twisted in their thinking, Paul warns over and over again, Jesus warns against it, James warns against it, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. You realize how seductively wrong this is? And no one can ever say anything wrong about your conduct. No one can ever point a finger. No one can ever say, hey, I want to help you, man. You're living a way that's destructive. No, you can't do that because you're, you're a, a stone-throwing legalistic Pharisee as opposed to someone in genuine love who wants to help a brother or help a sister. And when the Holy Spirit himself comes to lovingly convict us, the same Greek word used for convict, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin in John 16, is the same word Jesus uses in Revelation 3.19. As many as I love, I rebuke. Same word in the Greek. I rebuke and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And then a few verses later in Revelation 3.22, hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. These words of Jesus are the Holy Spirit speaking. When the Holy Spirit in his love comes to correct us or convict us or rebuke us, we rebuke that. That's condemnation. A friend of mine, an intercessor, had another friend who was going through a severe trial and he kept rebuking the devil, rebuking the devil, rebuking the devil, rebuking the devil. And one day the Lord said to him, you know, you and I would get along a lot better if you quit calling me Satan. <laughs> the hypergrace message takes a biblical truth to exaggerated proportions and then runs with it in such a way that shields us against conviction that shields us against correction, that shields us against warning that we're going the wrong way, and that gives us a deluded sense of self-righteousness through grace so that everybody else is guilty of being a legalist. Because of that, it's terribly dangerous. And then the moment we talk about changing lifestyle, Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no more. That's behavior modification. That's sin management. These little phrases crop up. When you hear those phrases, know immediately that someone's gotten caught up with the wrong message. And, and the antidote, as I mentioned while teaching Friday night, the antidote to this, aside from praying for people and patiently seeking to help them, I'll sometimes share with my wife Nancy, you know, there's this new teaching people saying this, 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 and her response is, but what do they do with the Bible? That's the antidote. You want to just stay with the words of Paul? You want me to prove that hypergrace is wrong using the words of Paul only? We'll do that in a matter of seconds. Because the word of God is clearly against it. On the other hand, let me close here. Don't react in such a way that you downplay the importance of grace. Don't react so that grace becomes a bad or dirty word. God's grace is the most wonderful thing imaginable. And we, we want to dive into an ocean of grace and swim in it and enjoy it every day of our lives. 
And we never want to think that we are standing before God because now we have attained perfect righteousness. We stand by grace. On the best day of our lives, on the holiest day we ever lived, we stand by grace. At the same time, God calls us to walk worthy. And maybe, in light of His perfect holiness, our best hundred-yard sprint is like a baby's first step. One of my missionary friends said that his granddaughter came and gave him a picture one day, and he thanked her. She was like six years old. Thank you all. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then he put it on the refrigerator. He goes, really, it was not a good picture. <laughs> Six-year-old granddaughter, you know? He said, but he said, I, I think from God's perspective, like Paul's most brilliant insight that he ever wrote is, is like a little child saying, Grandpa, I love you, kind of thing like that. It's not a matter of saying, I'm like God. No, no. But he's saying, follow my pattern. Follow my, embrace it. Love it. And then let's be examples of transformed lives. And as we see people justifying sin, that's where you sit them down. Just read a passage like Ephesians 5 about the beauty of holiness and being like Jesus and those that will not get in because of persistent sinful lifestyle and say, hey, can we run after Jesus together? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. And there are such things as dirty old men, by the way. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, holiness, and faith with others of a like heart. Let that be our pattern. Know to the, know to the stuff that, that Jesus carried on the cross. My sin, your sin, nailed him to the cross. We renounce that. Lord, I want to love you and please you. Let's be wholesome, wholehearted lovers of Jesus, reflectors of his grace for the world to see. And may God bring to repentance those who are willfully doing wrong and give revelation and insight to those who are innocently doing wrong. Amen? All right, let's pray. Abba, we love you and we thank you. We pray that you'll take us deeper, open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I know it's late with your time frame. Just give me two minutes. Uh, my book, Go and Sin No More, is the, the fullest statement on holiness it's about to be physically reprinted, but you can get the ebook. And there's a systematic teaching on grace as that as well. So for those that want to do that, but I want to encourage you to do something. Um, we've probably shipped a few extra of some books here. And uh, so we're reducing the price. I'm, I'm Jewish. It's not that big a discount. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, though, uh, we're really shucking the corn now. Am I getting it? No, no, do that. Uh, Two of my most important books, we reprinted in one. They, they would have been $15 each. We reprinted them in one, and, and they were $18 for the two.